with their stories being told. By people who are out of their minds. That's what we've always believed. I'm Brenna, and welcome to Live Patrol, an edutainment podcast that brings to light ingenious, interesting, and sometimes unbelievable stories from history and mixes in creative storytelling. Every episode, we hope you learn at least four facts that you can use around the dinner table or at the orphanage to astound your family, friends, or that guy Bruce Wayne. The headlines are ear-catching, that can't be true factoids, while the explanations show you just how real they are. Every week there will be two little lies thrown into the mix to keep us on our toes and vigilant for the truth. This week's topic is Cold War spies or spying, depending on what yeah, our what, what our topics mm. were. <laughs> uh, this one's gonna be like this one's gonna be pretty long. This is this was pretty fact heavy and so uh, buckle up. Alright, uh, are you ready, Michael? I am ready. Hit me. Okay, we got three headlines. The first one is Monopoly helped end the Cold War. Second one is East Germany successfully weaponized love. And three, the CIA trained pigeon photographers to fight the Soviets. Ooh, bad news. I definitely read the third one. That one's definitely true. Okay. Oh, man. Uh, read, read number two again. East Germany successfully weaponized love. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Okay. Um, well, hit me with that third one. The third one? Okay, yeah, that, we're going to cover the, our little pigeon story That first. one's definitely true. They definitely, like, they definitely zip-tied video cameras to pigeons. Well, and historically, like, this is not the first time. <laughs> All right, so the CIA trained pigeon photographers to fight the Soviets. According to the CIA's official website, on July 30th, 2019, they were finally able to declassify a portion of its information regarding some of our winged brethren, the spy pigeon. You may be asking yourself, why pigeons? Uh, well, pigeons have a rare ability to be able to be taken from where they live, placed hundreds or even thousands of miles away, and still be able to find their way home, uh, which is where the term homing pigeon comes from. Uh, pigeons, however, were not new to warfare for the Cold War. During World War II, pigeons were dropped in containers attached to parachutes with questionnaires over occupied Europe by the British Intelligence Service MI-14, uh, with more than 1,000 returning with messages and intel, some lucrative enough to contain V-1 rocket launch sites and German radar stations. Many pigeons from Ireland, the U.S., and Britain across both world wars received medals for their brave work in aiding communication, which is adorable. I bet they're kind of like little little necklaces they put on them. Have pigeons. you seen any of the pictures? I've only seen the pictures of uh, the pigeons I was looking at oh, <laughs> with the cameras. Yeah, they're like, <laughs> so... the cameras are just as big as their bodies. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll get into that. However, the CIA wanted to give the birds a technological upgrade, uh, although most CIA documentation is dated from 1975 on, it would appear they had been using information gathered in the 1960s as well before creating what became known as Operation Takana. Takana. So on the CIA website, they have a whole area of just animal friends. And <laughs> they call it, yeah, they call it like animal friends or something like that. And it goes back to during like earlier than the 70s, they were trying to test if dolphins could be used, if uh, ravens were being used they had all kinds of things the, the dolphins were like uh, looking for underwater mines they and were stuff, doing they did and... like underwater mine detecting and radar uh but that was difficult because they kind of only bond with their trainers and the trainers are not war <laughs> <laughs> and they're not like part of the war 
uh, militaries. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, the, a lot of the information about this came from that, which is where they started their operation. The idea was to send pigeons over restricted areas with small 16 millimeter cameras strapped to them, weighing only about 35 grams or roughly 1.2 ounces. In testing, more than half the photos taken by these pigeons came out remarkably clear, but were also of higher quality than satellite images at the time. Furthermore, in a memo for a meeting dated February 20th to 21st, 1976, the project heads expressed astonishment at the ability of the birds to locate their targets even when the targets had moved from where the pigeons had previously noted them to be. So how they were training them was, previously we'd known that you could take a pigeon, drop it, and it would go back home, but they were able to train it not only to be dropped somewhere else, but along the way to the home, have a target to stop at, locate the target, fly around, and then go back home. Wow, that's to the ranch. That's incredible. It is incredible. It really is. Uh, so as of 1976, it appears Operation Takata was on its way to being a success. Uh, however, that is as far as we know. The extent of all the pigeon photographers and their little cameras in the Cold War has yet to be declassified. The point that we have declassified as of September of 2019 was only up to 1976, so mm. we don't actually know the extent. And there was, uh, in a couple of the memos, issues with when they were testing them in the U.S., they were worried civilians were noticing and be thinking that they were spying on them. <laughs> So they had to make cover stories, although I wasn't able to follow up with what kind of cover stories. I wasn't able to find the media on a, this, but they were worried that we were... It's a training mission. <laughs> which kind of comes back to now when there are legit conspiracies about birds just being spies. So going back to the animal friends on the CIA mm -hmm. website, do you know if when they when they died, if they got buried with uh, military honors? Cause, I, didn't, I don't know about that. Because they, they, they treat bomb dogs... Uh, uh, they, they get police funerals and stuff. I like. imagine they either did that or it's likely. Um, one of the models that they've gone off of, um, is they have a museum that mostly is not open to the public, but of like CIA stuff. And they have a model of a pigeon in there. But it isn't unbelievable to think maybe they have them stuffed and put oh, this place somewhere. <laughs> Considering yeah. our history with how we've treated <laughs> like things like that. Um, another cute little fact was when you're reading through the, the documents, um, they will state things like, oh yes, Pigeon blah 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 was able to successfully come in with the, uh, 35 gram payload. And I think it's just <laughs> adorable when you're like, oh, it's this, it's so small, it's a baby payload, but it's payload. <laughs> he has the goods. <laughs> So yeah, that that was really interesting. I hope that you know when they declassify more, we get to learn more about their their hard work for the CIA. I don't know if it's really for us. <laughs> they do good work. Yeah. All, All right. What, what was, do you want next? What, what was number one? Number one. Well, let me get back to my list. Monopoly helped end the Cold War. <laughs> okay. Well, the end of the Cold War was the fall of the Berlin Wall. Hmm. I am not sure because I could see like. Hmm. I'm really happy the, you haven't had either of these. The board game is <laughs> older than, like, much older. I want to say it's from the 20s. I want to say it spawned out of the Great Depression. So I don't see how a Great Depression game could stop a war. 
Uh, oh man, I hope I stump you on these. You know what? You know what's true is East Germany weaponized love. Okay, let's get into that. All right. Um, in 1951, German-born Marcus Wolf, known to be one of the greatest spy masters in history, joined the Ministry for State Security in East Germany, known as the Stasi and was among the founding members of the Foreign Intelligence Service at the age of 29. Wolf had previously been exiled to Moscow during World War II due to his father being a member of the Communist Party of Germany as well as Jewish. Although Wolf had been a Soviet citizen since the age of 13, he had been sent back to East Germany after the war. So he left Russia due to, uh, not Russia, he left Germany due to World War II because, you know, his family was going to be persecuted. And so even though he's a German man, he does, he resides, he's a, he's Russian, you know? Uh, so, but then they send him back to help with the war efforts. During Wolf's time as intelligence chief of the Stasi, he was known for planting and coordinating spies into West Germany with great success, as well as getting the nickname, the man without a face from the West due to the inability of Western intelligence to identify him. So he was a big deal. One famous method for spy insertion was a specific type of sexpionage Wolf exploited known as Romeo spies. West German women working as secretaries in government buildings or wives of West German officials were targeted by these Romeos trained to find their likes, dislikes, and vulnerabilities in order to seduce the women for information. A notable case was Gabrielle Klein, a former translator at the U.S. Embassy in Bonn, Germany, so she worked in West Germany. She was targeted by Frank Bietzel, a Stasi officer impersonating a physicist working for a humanitarian cause. Only after seven years of engagement did she find out he was a spy with a family in East Germany who received a, spy, a medal for the work he did with her. In a 2004 interview with Klein, she gave some insight as to why this sort of thing could happen, stating, translators and secretaries were hardly ever invited to official social functions, and single oh, women were eyed suspiciously by married women. It was almost impossible to find a boyfriend, and if you found one, almost impossible to keep him. The stakes were very high. The competition was enormous. Uh, there was even a report. I wasn't able to find the the backing for this, but there was a rumor that NATO in their offices would put up posters, and some of the posters, because of what was happening in West Germany, uh, were stating like, "Don't fall for the romantic don't, men." Don't fall for love. <laughs> yeah, to like because they had they had so many posters during the time for like security and not who not to talk to when not to talk to them what not to say so it's not crazy to think that they would say and also don't fall in love <laughs> <laughs> due to married couples requiring to be registered in west germany romeos would never marry and would always insist marriage was not their thing so many women stayed engaged for extended times so in her case so she had been engaged to this man for seven years and because he said that he was working for this humanitarian cause it was supposed to be like a world peace mm -hmm. organization she was she felt like it was okay that the information that she was seeing she would divulge to him because she's like this will go to like ending the war and you know she would it's like in a roundabout way it did yeah I, well i guess <laughs> there are also cases of romeos attempting to be replaced by other romeos on the same target because you know jobs change people change you get caught you know those, uh, which often did not take however curiously there were women who had agreed to spy for their Romeo, but loved the excitement of espionage so much they continued with the next aging even when their old Romeo left. 
Like, they understood <laughs> they what they were was... doing, and they're like, this is more exciting than my real life. Like, I'll just keep going. I don't care who you are, Einrich. I don't... Yeah. I'll just keep doing it. <laughs> uh, although the KGB attempted their own version of the Romeo spy, they did not utilize it with anywhere near the success rate of Wolf and the Stasi. In a 1999 Guardian article, a former KGB intelligence officer noted a man by the name John Simmons who they attempted to use as a Romeo after he told them the whereabouts of Oleg Lyonlin, a double agent for the U.S. I don't know if you came across this man. He was a double agent. He was with us, then he switched over. And, uh, or, yeah, no, I think he, he was a double agent. He sold out. No, my bad. Double agent the other way, so. He was for us, then for them, then for us again? No, no he, he was he started, a Russian. started as Russian. Who, he was a Russian spy who flipped the U.S. And then what he gave over, or he, to the British, I think, and then what information he gave over sent a hundred Russian spies out of Britain. <laughs> uh, I believe it was Britain. <laughs> it might have been the U.S. <laughs> Anyways, he was a big deal, uh, a big asset. Uh, the only notable info that Simmons, who had been then used as a Romeo, uh, was able to find was the suspicions that West Germany had of a spy in the West German Chancellor Willy Brandt's entourage in 1974. The information turned out to be true, but it had not been a KGB agent that had been planted within the Chancellor's uh, entourage. Rather, it was Gunter Gulliam, an East German spy placed by Wolf. So it was one of Wolf's spies. East Germany acted on the KGB's information too late and Guillaume was caught. And this was a huge issue because Willy Brandt stepped down that same year as West German Chancellor, which Wolf stated in his biography was the equivalent of kicking a football into our own goal and was a disaster for East Germany because what the whole goal was not to get the Chancellor out of there. The whole goal was to be able to spy and get the information. So they basically sold out their they, whole or their whole situation. They basically put the shoe on and chopped themselves in it. Yeah, exactly. So uh, let's see. So there was a small, a small little bit that was really interesting about this. Uh, West Germany had started capturing Romeos, and the East could not figure out how they knew. Like these men, they're like, I don't even understand how these men are getting scooped up. It was later discovered that they could tell by their haircuts. Romeos had short, clean-cut hair, and most West German men grew their hair out. So what would happen was they would go around and they'd notice men who had, like, the short, clean-cut hair, and they'd follow them, and then the moment something went a little weird, they'd arrest them, and they're like, oh, no, where are all our spies going? Yeah, it's not the guy not the guy walking with the mullet and denim. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was a really interesting way of... Uh, one of the things Wolf said was that uh, at first he didn't know how lucrative this was going to be, but he had assumed that he was going to, from one woman, he could get more information than he could from ten men. And it turned out it was true. <laughs> so do you know if they ever did it the other way? Did they ever train females? I mean... Oh, yeah, of course. They've always had that, but that was, that's been used since World War II. They had that. Oh, okay. Where so the honeypot has been around forever. Yeah, this is basically just a, honey pot, a, a take honey on the honeypot. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. So you remember the movie, the not the movie, but you're a show I know you've watched. I watched to the Americans. Yes. Uh, the the male in that he plays the honeypot to that secretary. He was a Romeo basically, but this was more of a East Germany West Germany thing. Yeah, it was kind of cool that the the big, one of the biggest spy masters was the. 
big brains behind it. Was it's using, very Bond-esque. Was weaponizing sex. <laughs> yep. <laughs> we just call it sexpionage in the biz. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So then that ends with Monopoly helped end the Cold War. Okay. Well, your reasoning is weird, but it, you're right. In it's a roundabout way, I'm exactly, right. It's not exactly. <laughs> In 1977, the Soviet Union began building their new embassy location at 2650 Wisconsin Avenue, Washington, D.C., which happened to be on Mount Alto, the second highest point in the Washington, D.C. area. This produced a whirlwind of fear in the media as well as the CIA due to the close proximity of the new embassy to the United States Naval Observatory at 3450 Massachusetts Avenue and the possibility that the location may have been capable of eavesdropping on radio communications between U.S. intelligence agencies. However, there was also opportunity to be found in the new location. In what came to be called Operation Monopoly, an ode to the real estate purchasing board game, the FBI purchased the home across the street, or possibly next door, from the new embassy construction site and began building a tunnel underneath the embassy. A contractor was hired. <laughs> yeah. This is so, this is so like Spy vs. Spy cartoon kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, this is straight out of a cartoon. Yeah. <laughs> A contractor was hired, and agents posing as construction crews began working in the same area as the construction crews working on the embassy, which camouflaged the agents. Real construction workers were also propositioned by the FBI to plant bugs in the embassy as well. <laughs> so the FBI built the tunnel, gained lucrative information on the Soviets, and eventually won the upper hand, right? Well, after a decade and hundreds of millions of U.S. dollars later... The tunnel leaked. Construction workers did not have any real clue as to where under the embassy they were. <laughs> <laughs> and the building hadn't even really been occupied the Soviet consulate until 1994, long after the fall of the Soviet Union. So basically, completely useless. <laughs> I've seen this plot. It was in Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> <laughs> to top it all off, in 2001, Robert Hansen, who worked off and on with the FBI between 1979 to 2001, was arrested for espionage after selling thousands of documents to the Soviet Union as a double agent, including revealing the location of the tunnel in 1989, <laughs> before the tunnel had ever been completed, owing to years of bad intel being fed from the Soviet embassy to the FBI. So they had had, like, a, they had, the consulate hadn't fully uh, lived in the embassy until 94, but after it was finished being built and i believe like 1980 they had a little bit they had some people in there and then once it was revealed or it hadn't been finished till like 90 or something but anyways uh it had already been revealed that it existed so what the soviets loved to do was send bad Feed bad yeah info. which you find they did a lot they yeah. really enjoyed that and uh so not really great in the end, the tunnels seem more like the FBI buying Boardwalk and Park Place, only to never have anyone land there. <laughs> the operation cost tens of millions of dollars of the FBI's budget with little to show, an issue that had sparked a divide within the FBI ranks before the project even started. To this day, however, the FBI has not revealed the exact location of the tunnel, and only government officials have been granted tours of the soggy Cold War path. <laughs> so... <laughs> God, I imagine some guy coming on his first day. I want to see the I want to see the tunnel under the embassy. <laughs> yeah, it's super boring, dude. We can go there if you want. Fine, I guess it's pretty gross. Did you even wear the right shoes for it? <laughs> what I thought was kind of fun is that um, the Soviets kind of took this as like, oh, we knew this was gonna happen because they had bugged like. 
the U.S. Embassy so bad, like it was called the Great Bug. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you so win again. I went three for three. Yeah. No, okay. Well, Nailed it. Three for three. I don't know about that, man. <laughs> All right. You ready? Yes, I am ready. Okay. Here are my three. James Bond is a bird watcher. The murder on the Orient Express book is based upon the alleged murder of Captain Eugene Simon Carp in 1950. Carp was found un under railroad tracks with his passport stolen. The third one is, dog poo was used to transmit radio signals by the U.S. Air Force. Oh, I hate them all. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you like this? I feel like the dog poo one is a little out left, but also I keep trying to pick the ones that are... Dog poo one has to be real. It has to be real too weird. Um, the Orient Express. That could have been real. What's the first one? James Bond is a bird watcher. Dead air. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Okay, we're going to go with the poop. Okay, uh, this one's a little more espionage than spying, but here we go. And there isn't really a lot of info on this one, but the headline was just too good to not use. Uh, the KGB and CIA, and to a lesser extent MI6, were all in an arms race to one-up each other with spy tech and tradecraft. If one branch had the newest and best tech, the others wanted to steal it and reproduce it without leaving a trace. I mean, how often do you look at feces? This was the the U.S. Air Force. Around Vietnam, the Air Force needed beacons and radio transmitters that could relay messages, and they found the technology to do so remotely. The question then became, how do you hide something in plain sight? Through poop. Oh my god. The, beacon, the beacons were purposely modeled after local animal feces so that the Viet Cong wouldn't think twice about it, let alone picking it up and investigating it. And I couldn't, here's the problem, is I really couldn't find any missions or anything about specific uses, of, but they, it was, it's, uh, it's in the uh, National Air Force Museum. There's a, there's a, a, a medium-sized dog poop and there's a, there's a plaque that says, it was used as a radio beacon. <laughs> That's in amazing. Vietnam. <laughs> Beautiful. Lovely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, good. I'm, uh, at least I didn't pick the lie. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're tuned better than normal. Oh. What? There's still a chance to screw it up. James Bond is a bird watcher. The murder on the Orient Express book is based upon the alleged murder of Captain Eugene Simon Carp in 1950. I'm going to go with James Bond. Okay. Oh, no. <laughs> so this one was purposely misleading. This one was true. So you, you did get it right this week. Yes! I did it! I did it! This one was purposely misleading. <laughs> Ian Fleming created the character in his best-selling books in 1952. He sat down at the Golden Eye Estate in Jamaica and wrote the first four pages of Casino Royale on February 17th of that year. Mostly stories and recollections from his own experiences. Fleming, a naval intelligence officer in World War II, had wanted to write a spy novel since his discharge in 45. Casino Royale was such a success, it required three print runs to keep up with the demand. Fleming's next story is focused on amalgamations of various officers and individuals that he met while in the Navy. Among these were his brother Peter, who was involved with behind-enemy-lines espionage in Greece and Norway, and Bill Dunderdale, the station head of MI6 Paris, who wore handmade suits with cufflinks and was chauffeured around in a Rolls Royce. Nice style. Fleming wrote 12 novels and two short story collections between 1953 and 66. 
He generally received positive reviews until his sixth book was released in 58, Dr. No. And everyone hated him. And no one will ever make any movies of his now. (laughs) (laughs) One criticism of the book was sex, sovereign, sadism. This is around... Wait, wait, wait. Sadism? Sex, sobriety. Sadism? Sadism. Sadism. (laughs) Okay, good. This is also around the time he began having marital issues with his wife, Anne Chartres. Wait, 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 wait. Is he just going to write a whole book about, I wish I could do these things, but my wife? (laughs) No. In 1960, Fleming was commissioned by the Kuwait Oil Company to write a book about the country and its oil industry. While (laughs) While the company responded favorably to... Uh, quote, State of Excitement, Impressions of Kuwait, as it was titled. It was never published. The company submitted the book to the gov- to the Kuwaiti government, and the sheiks weren't too happy with some of the concerns and criticism the book bought. So Fleming went back to doing what he was good at, writing spy novels. In 61, he saw a huge spike in sales, most likely due to John F. Kennedy adding, From Russia with Love, to his favorite ten books list. Fleming continued to write and started directing movie adaptations of the books he wrote. In January 1964, Fleming wrote a first draft of The Man with the Golden Gun. Unsatisfied with it, he gave it to his typesetter to rewrite. Unfortunately, his last two works were released after his death, Man with the Golden Gun and Octopussy and the Living Daylights. They were both viewed as half-finished, and a lot of people thought they shouldn't have been released at all due to Fleming not giving his stamp of approval on them. Fleming was also an avid bird watcher, who was very well read on the subject and had many books written by ornithologist and Caribbean bird expert James Bond in his library. When Fleming set out to write Casino Royale, he wanted his spy to be an average Joe whose circumstances happened around him. He wanted an unassuming character that was almost uninteresting. Quote, When I wrote the first one in 1953, I wanted Bond to be an extremely dull, uninteresting man to whom things happened. I wanted to be a blunt instrument. When I was casting around for a name for my protagonist, I thought, by God, James Bond is the dullest name I've ever heard. (laughs) That makes sense. James Bond was a bird watcher. <laughs> he just has life come at him. <laughs> Alright, third one is... I, I also oh. agree, Octopussy shouldn't have been made. <laughs> <laughs> that movie sucks. <laughs> the third one is, The Murder on the Orient Express book is based upon the alleged murder of Captain Eugene Simon Carp in 1950. Carp was found under the tracks with his passport stolen. So, this is the lie. Uh, there's two separate stories here. Well... You know, maybe three. But all three are incredible in their own right. And true. They're just false when put together. So buckle up, because this is a wild ride. George Knacklemackers founded the Compagnie Internationale des Wagons Litz and invited some of his friends in 1882 to join him on his lightning luxury train. The first trip was from Paris to Vienna and back. This is the route that eventually became the Orient Express. The train went through several iterations, but the first was the original Paris to Romania via... Vienna and Munich. The route changed in 1885, with the terminus being Bulgaria and then a ferry to Constantinople. In 1889, the track was changed to arrive directly in Constantinople, and the name was officially changed to the Orient Express in 91. World War I halted services, but they resumed when fighting died down in 1918 and full service in 1919, with the addition of a southerly route through Italy. This route was called the Simplon Orient Express. The end of World War I brought with it the Treaty of St. Germain which contained a clause that Austria must accept the Orient Express through its borders. This sets the stage for the Cold War in the Orient Express. All right. Agatha Christie wrote Murder on the Orient Express, and it was published in January 1934. 
Later that year, it would be published in the United States as Murder in the Calais Coach, because two years prior, Graham Greene released the novel Orient Express. Spoilers ahead, although if you haven't read it by now, I don't think you were going to. The Orient Express line that the detective is on stops due to a heavy snowfall. On his way home to London from the Middle East, a murderer is discovered on the train, and he must use his detective skills to find the murderer. It was a wild success when it was released and has been ever since, even getting multiple film adaptations. Christie cites that there were three main sources for the book, the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby, her first ride on the Orient Express, and its story about the Orient Express that occurred a few months after her first ride. The train got stopped for six days near modern-day Turkey, while snow was cleared from the tracks due to a blizzard-associated snowfall and avalanches. Okay, all of that backstory and exposition to finally arrive at the Cold War part. Yay! The Orient Express was one of the few connections between East and West Europe. While communist civilians were not allowed to travel on it, it was used for diplomatic and political refugees. And perhaps spies. Ooh. Captain Eugene Simon Karp was in the Navy and was sent to Romania following the end of World War II in 1946. Karp was in the, na the Naval Attaché in Romania. After four years abroad, he was set to head home for leave. However, he made a trip to visit an old classmate of his on February 22, 1950. He went to Budapest via the Simplon Orient Express to visit Robert Vogler. Vogler was sentenced by the People's Court to 15 years in prison for sabotage and spying the day earlier on February 21st. Carp had visited with the Vogler household and met with Robert's wife on the 22nd. Carp departed for the U.S. via Paris on the Simplon Orient Express on the 23rd of February. On the 24th, a track walker discovered the body of Eugene S. Carp under the tracks. All of Carp's papers were found in his civilian clothes sans passport. Austrian police concluded that Carp fell from the tracks on the curve. U.S. Army investigators also believed that the death was accidental, citing that Carp suffered from gout and that standing and keeping his balance was difficult for him. He was found near a tunnel in Salzburg, Austria. All passengers were checked by the police at the Swiss border, which would have been after the death took place. The passengers were also checked as they arrived in Paris by the French police. All passengers were deemed as legitimate tra travelers, and there was no reason to suspect any of the passengers as having a part in his death. Washington officials never accepted that the death was accidental. The Austrian minister for the interior also suspected foul play. The investigation found several things, most of which pointed to murder. The body was sent to the U.S. portion of Berlin for an autopsy, but the results were inconclusive due to the poor state of the body after being thrown from the train. However, the autopsy stated that there was no alcohol in his system at the time of death, and it had been found that Carp was dragged for a great distance before he lost his grip and fell under the next car's wheels. None of the windows on his train car were open at the time of the accident. Carp was six foot tall, and it was unlikely that he would have been peeking out of a window when moving through a tunnel. The sleeper car that Carp that had only opened from the inside. A British traveling companion that had spoken to Carp said that Carp, quote, complained of dizziness uh, a bit before his fall. Two years later, a Romanian student claimed to have committed the murder with two other assailants for a, an unknown organization. The U.S. spent 10 years trying to unravel the full picture of what happened to Captain Carp, but there, were never, there was never a satisfying conclusion. As it stands now, the case is considered to be an accidental death. Carp was buried in Arlington National Cemetery with full military honors on March 16, 1950. Do you know how Agatha Christie's book ends? No, because I didn't even know Agatha Christie wrote it. I would have read it. <laughs> couple more spoilers, but the detective puts forth two options. The first is that the assailant boarded the train, killed the victim, and departed the train before it stopped due to the snow. The other is that all of the passengers were in on it and stabbed the victim. 
I don't know how many Julius Caesar him. <laughs> I don't know how many people are needed to help push someone from a train, but maybe that should be the twist of the story. <laughs> wow, that's quite a conclusion. Yeah, I did not know. So I know there's been like a million movie adaptations. Everybody talks about this. I didn't know it was a mystery who done it. <laughs> now I'm really curious. Do you want me to spoil the, the twist in the book? I mean, close your ears, audience. They all did it. Yeah. After the detective poses the question, the a woman gives up gives up the goods and says that they, they were all in on it. Everybody wanted this guy dead. Yep. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah. Honestly, That's a good twist. This... I gotta forget that. <laughs> This story's so good. Like, I think it could do with another. I think another book could be written about it because oh, this man. this story's nuts. That I, is kind of. I found it and it just started taking turns left and right. Yeah, when you start getting into these like weird mystery deaths, especially when it's related to like wars, the Cold War has so much like. A lot of ins, a lot of outs. Things. <laughs> so, do you have any honorable mentions? Anything? Anything notable? Uh, there was a lot. Um, just to reiterate back at the story, when I mentioned Oleg Lineland, uh, he was, I verified he was a British spy who turned over. He was supposed to be a Russian spy. He went to Britain, spied for Britain, and then turned over, uh, all the Russian people to Britain. So it wasn't the U.S. Um, but that's all I was clarifying. Uh, let's see, what other stuff? Oh yeah, they had the story about the shoelaces that the U.S. used to communicate between their spies. Oh, the way they tied them or whatever? Yeah, you tied yeah. them a certain uh, way. Yeah. yeah, that was boring. Yeah, that was one of those clickbait ones. <laughs> uh, did you see anything that you uh, really liked? Bicycle uh, made made special uh, decks of cards that when you got the cards wet, uh, the cards would separate and you could. there was a map on them if you pieced them together. I thought that was kind of cool. Oh, that's pretty dope. Um, I have uh, I have a couple written down. Uh, communism created arguably the worst car ever, the Trabant. <laughs> <laughs> this this one I, I I really wanted to I was gonna do this one if I could find a real story that used it, but because everything from the Cold War is still classified, I couldn't find anything. The CIA created the rectal toolkit to help operatives escape <laughs> imprisonment. Oh yeah. I read that one and I was I was so on the brink, but then I was like, I don't know. I yeah, don't know. I, it, it was it was so small. <laughs> it was like the dog poo one, and I like the dog poo one better. Yeah. There's also the uh, number station. Uh, there's a radio broadcast from 1982 that no one will take ownership of. The number station MDZHB. Weird. Nobody will take. Is no, it they're still going? it's still going. Nice. Yeah, the Russians. Well, I guess the the Russians won't claim ownership of it. Uh, no. Basically, none of the Eastern Bloc countries will. Yeah. But still, still running. Still, they're still spewing numbers. I think if you go online, you can if you search you can, for. You can tap into that. Yeah. Uh, so. For all of us nerds out there that like number stations and stuff, yeah. the problem is when you get into them, you realize like it's cool and all, but you also yeah. are never gonna have an answer yourself. <laughs> yeah. Plus, you have the key, and then it's pointless. Yeah. Um, but maybe we should do a number station episode. That might. Oh be yeah, fun. we can do something like weird broadcasts. Oh, that, might be that would be that would be an interesting one. Uh, I already know them all, so you'll never stop me. Uh, <laughs> there was also, um, it wasn't for sure known whether cyanide capsules were ever used. Um, a lot of times in Bond movies and like, it's you know, spy stuff, it's always, that everybody has cyanide capsules hidden in their mouths or stuff. Um, according to uh, intelligence groups, especially like the U.S. who would have Russian 
double agents and try to send them. The Russians always wanted a way out because if they got captured, they knew what would happen to them. Supposedly, according to CIA. Uh, so they reluctantly would give them, like, pens with cyanide capsules. The problem was if they they had to make sure that they weren't chewing on their pens, just, like, out of a nervous <laughs> tick or something. Uh, the CIA also <laughs> had something similar, and I think they came up with an idea to not accidentally kill their operatives. They had uh, cyanide spy glasses. Yeah, the ones, yeah. Where in the earpiece, there was, there was a little capsule of cyanide, and if, if the, the operatives ever saw the walls closing in, they took off their glasses and chink. Yeah, but another thing was people also chew on their glasses. That was also a problem. <laughs> Yeah, I guess. <laughs> but I read the eyeglasses one too. Um, but yeah, it was a reluctant thing because they didn't really want to lose their assets after mm. they put. And they were really afraid that people would get into situations that they could have easily gotten out of but would panic mm. and would have used them. But yeah, they were real. They just weren't as uh, probably not as uh, prevalent as they are in movies, definitely. <laughs> um, another uh, interesting thing on the sexpionage thing, I think it was... It's been the last five years. Uh, people have been petitioning to have... There's about 40 women who were arrested uh, and charged with espionage because of because they were, you know, honeypotted by the Romeos. And so there's a petition now to pardon them because that's not fair. You shouldn't play with love like that. <laughs> uh, I mean, okay, some of them, yeah, sure. But the ones who like the, the risk and the danger, I mean, come on. Oh, well, <laughs> obviously. I think it's different. Like, if, if she works with two different ones and she knew about it, yeah. I don't think she's going to be <laughs> pardoned. But there was so many women. And the, the one, Gabriella she was completely ostracized by her community she lost her job she lost everything she now lives by herself she's never married she's never done anything um and she said she just lives an incredibly lonely life and it's really sad <laughs> but marcus wolf good job man you ruined people's lives so when we first uh, set out to uh, research this topic it, we were just going to do the cold war uh that turned out to be too big so we just narrowed in on spying uh, if there's any topics you want us to cover from the Cold War, because we can make probably like a half dozen episodes and still not be out of content, go ahead and shoot us a line at thelivepatrol at gmail.com. I think that's it for us. Uh, we'll see you next time. Have a good one. Bye. For show ideas, inaccuracies, or general comments, you can email us at thelivepatrol at gmail.com. Intro and outro music provided by the Simulation Hypothesis by Revolution Boy, found on the Free Music Archive CCBY license. Thank you for listening. Train, Thomas tra is a train. Thomas the tank engine train. Why can't they just say he's a train? Train, train. <laughs> Oh no, have we been recording? <laughs> it's fine. Okay. Easy cut.